We're going to listen to reading from God's Word from the Bible from 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. And Bill Wright is going to read from within the congregation. Let's listen to the Word of God together. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And, and it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For these who testify, who testify, those who testify the Spirit, the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is a testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a whoever do, whoever does however who who does not believe in God has made him out to be a liar, because he has not believed the testimony God has given him about his son. And this is the this is a testimony God has given as eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you to believe in the name of the Son of God so that you, do, you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray to God and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, but I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. You are holy, and yet we have this amazing access to you, Lord, through your Son, Jesus. And so we want to see him lifted up among us in our lives and in this church today as we come to your word. Speak now, for your servants are open and are listening. Amen. Let's sit down, everyone. So we come to the end of 1 John uh, we've managed to get to the end of this, uh, this letter. Uh, not quite. We have to finish it off with the, today's sermon. And what a passage it is to share with you. You'll know the situation John uh, was writing to in Ephesus. Uh, the church was a, in a bit of trouble. There were people that had come among uh, them who were teaching that Jesus was not necessarily fully God. And so they weren't getting the full gospel message. And so John is writing to try and challenge that, but also to reassure them of the salvation that the Lord has given them. 
So this is quite complex, and it's quite a complex passage for us uh, to go through this morning. So I've tried to uh, break it down and keep it as simple as we possibly can. Um, you know, it's really important if you're a church of Christ, if you're part of the body of Christ, that you get some things right. There are three things that I think it's important for churches to exhibit. Correct doctrine, i.e. what we believe and what we teach from God's Word. Obedience to what the Lord has said. So when the Lord says, do this, be like this, live like this, we try to follow that true. We try, true, we try to follow Him. And then loving relationships with one another. I think we try to do that at St. Thomas's, on the whole. But we know that churches sometimes go through periods where some of those things, sometimes all of those things, go completely and utterly wrong. So let us turn to 1 John and to chapter 5. Um, Torsten led us last Sunday through uh, the first section of chapter 5. So we begin at verse at 6. And really, I want to begin at, at verse 6 with this. This first section uh, in verses uh, 6 to 12 is really only about one thing. And it's this. People of God, you need to know that church is not about you, much as you think it might be about you. It is about Jesus. It's not about anyone else but him. It's really quite as simple as that. It's all about Jesus. We read in verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now, two things at work here, I think, when John writes this. What he's doing is he's alluding to Jesus's baptism and his death on the cross when he shed his blood for the sins of the world. But I also think he's trying to battle against those false teachers who were a little bit iffy about the incarnation, that they didn't necessarily have a strong belief or teach well that God, that Jesus was the Son of God, born of Mary. Because that picture, he came by water and blood, is a picture of birth, isn't it? Anyone who's uh, ever been present in modern times, dads get to be present at the birth of their children. In olden days, I love saying olden days, in olden days it wasn't necessarily the case. But if you're a dad, you had the privilege of being present at the birth of your children. I had to have nurses standing by because I was passing out as this happened. But of course the waters break. Panic ensues from dads who run, well this is me running around. Help, the waters are broken, what are we going to do? And then when the baby eventually comes quickly or slowly, there's a certain amount of, uh, of gore involved. I, um, I was telling that we were talking to the staff about this passage on uh, Wednesday at the staff meeting. Often what we do is we kind of look at the, um, the passage that we're going to be reading, uh, teaching on, on the Sunday. And uh, I was telling about this occasion when birth and new birth of baptism uh, came together because um, we, uh, we had a, a baptistry pool that was basically a birthing pool uh, that we, we pulled in, we kind of uh, hired in from a company. And the Sunday, we were due to have a baptism on the Sunday and the pool normally came on the Thursday or the Friday and it didn't come. 
Friday afternoon, the, the, the baptism pool, the birthing pool, hadn't arrived. So we called up the company and they said, oh, it's been posted, but it hasn't arrived. Uh, I said, well, we really need it to come. And he said, well, look, we've got one here. It's just come in today, but you need to, we'll post it out today and it'll be with you tomorrow on Saturday. But, we've, but they said this, but we've not got time to clean it. That's fine, just send it. So here it came, this thing arrived, and we opened it up, and it had been used not for a baptism, but for a birth. Never again. After that, I said, we must buy our own birthing pool, because it was a major cleaning job on behalf of the, a couple of staff members, including, I didn't get other people to do it, I felt I had to do it myself. So when John writes here, he's alluding to that, the birth, the real physical birth, God coming to earth. His mother Mary giving birth. And as we go into Advent, we go into the Advent season and we think of uh, Christmas, we forget about the messiness of it. It's kind of been written out a little bit from the way we sing and the way we talk about it. God coming into the mess of the earth to be the one who brings redemption. That's what John is painting a picture of here. This is the one who came by the water and the blood. Jesus Christ, he needs to be your focus. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. And then he says this, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. So essentially what he's trying to do is reassure the people of God that this belief, this trust in Jesus is deep and real and meaningful and transforming. There will be those who tell you, don't be so daft. Imagine believing in that. I don't know if any, uh, how many people have had any encounters as we've been delivering leaflets around the area, but sometimes when we, uh, we present people with gospel messages, when we present people with the gospel, there's a reaction against it. You know, people will be negative and fight back and say, oh, this is, this is um, our, our, our old-fashioned. You know, it's not something that we should be adopting in this day and age. We need to be prepared for that. But our assurance, our reassurance, doesn't rely on what others think. It is on what God has said and what God is saying. So John is wanting to reassure God's people that what they had received originally is the truth. Why is it the truth? Because God has witnessed to it. And Jesus is who he said he is. The way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life, the light of the world. So John is seeking to reassure the people of God that it is all about Jesus. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So when we meet as church, what we're doing is holding out the life of God. Jesus said, John 10, verse 10, I've come that they may have life and life in all its fullness. 
That's who we offer to people. We don't offer church. We don't offer religion. We don't offer a denomination. We don't offer our goodness or our loveliness or our friendliness. We are offering the person of Christ to those around us. So John reassures them. It's all about Jesus. But here's five things that we can know, people of God. Five things that's important for you to know as John draws his letter to an end. The first thing is this. We can know that we have eternal life. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. John's talking about prayer there. He's saying we pray in line with what is God's will. We don't pray selfishly for ourselves. When we pray, we pray for what we know God wants to see happening in our lives and the life of our world. So this morning, what do we pray for? We pray for peace. Because obviously that's something we should pray for. We don't pray selfishly. But John's concern is that people have confidence in God that they have eternal life. What a privilege it is to preach that message. Those who turn to Christ have eternal life. That's our desire, our purpose is to point to the living Lord Jesus. This week, the office got a call from a nurse and the nurse um, works in one of the hospitals, one of the satellite hospitals in Edinburgh. And she was looking for someone to go in and visit a patient. And um, the chaplaincy service in the NHS, this is something we need to pray about, the chaplaincy service in the NHS is so stretched they could not send someone to visit this patient who was in distress. So they'd cast around, this person lives fairly locally to us here, and this nurse was casting around for a church, and of course we came up on the internet, um, fairly high up the list of churches, so we'd be sent someone to go and visit. So I went to visit, and here's this man who is not a church connection, hasn't been to church for most of his life, and um, is clearly concerned about what's going to happen when he dies. So my responsibility in that situation is to share a little bit of the eternal life that Jesus makes possible through his death and through his resurrection and to point to him. We can know that we have eternal life. And we live in that eternal life. It's not about when we just when we die. It's about stepping into it now and living in it now. You see, if we think it's all about Jesus, that's what we will try to do. We will try to live in him and for him. Andrew Bonner wrote about Robert Murray McShane, an amazing man uh, who lived in the early part of the uh, 19th century was a minister in Dundee who died really young, died of typhus, aged 30, but has left a, left a legacy of amazing writings, amazing letters uh, and sermons and talks. He was a minister of St. Peter's, which what is now St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. And he wrote this, and he kind of sums this up 
this idea of living an eternal life right now in what, he wrote, in what he writes. He writes this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. See, that's the key to Christian living. I love so many of the lines in there, but live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. That's a a goal for this week for everybody. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. When you feel low, when you're struggling this week, remember those words. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. He smiles upon us. So know that we have eternal life. Secondly, know that God hears and answers our prayers. That's what he says in verses 14 to 15. When we pray, God hears and answers our prayers. It's why we pray. It's why we meet to pray. Tonight, there will be a little group of us that meet online half past six on a Zoom call. We've been doing this every Sunday for the best part of three years, longer than that now, just gathering five or six people to pray, believing that as we do this, we're bringing needs and concerns to the Lord and knowing and believing that He hears our prayers. It's a vital part of what we do. It's what we're encouraged to do in uh, the Bible. And I know that we struggle sometimes, the notion of meeting for prayer and being in prayer meetings that can feel a little bit hard and and, uh, tiring and so on. But it's such a vital thing uh, that we do. It's the engine room of the church. It's what we do uh, just as a matter of course. Long may it continue at St. Thomas's that we are a people of prayer, that we take it seriously, not because we do it because it's um, ritual or not because we do it because it's habit, but we do it because that Father who, who, in, whose, in whose beams we, we bask is listening to us. He loves it when we are in his presence. It's like if you have your children, if you've got children and your children are coming to visit, maybe they're visiting with you right now, maybe you've got uh, the anticipation of family coming to see you at Christmas or you're having guests at Christmas, you kind of look forward to it, don't you? You kind of think, this is great, I'm going to see them. At the end of it, you're kind of going, glad they're going. <laughs> God's never like that with us. 
He loves it when we're in His presence, when we're with Him. That's the commitment to prayer. He hears us as we pray in His will. He's listening to us. So we can be sure that that is a good thing to do. So why not do it? Do it on your own. Come and do it when you get the opportunity, will you? Third thing, we can know that our future is secure. Verse 18 says this. Sorry, let's just do verse 16 onwards. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, what is this sin that leads to death? That's what you're thinking. You want to know what is the sin that leads to death? Well, there's lots of sin that leads to death. Obviously, there's lots of things that you could do that might lead to death. If you drink too much alcohol, that's a bad thing and it might lead to death. If you drive badly without due care and attention, you might end up killing yourself or killing someone else. There are lots of things like that in life, sin that leads to death. But that's not what John's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual death. There are things that lead to spiritual death. And what John is worried about is those who are teaching untruth. Those who are taking people away from the Lord Jesus and teaching what they think is a good teaching. We see this all the time in the church. Down through history, this has been a feature. People who are leading others to spiritual death. So that what they're, what they're teaching people to believe is not actually bringing spiritual life. And John's concern is that you need to be careful about that and make sure that's not happening. And if it is happening, if someone is teaching something that is leading to spiritual death, what should you do? There was a period when maybe the church got this, not maybe, definitely got this completely and utterly wrong. They had a thing called the Inquisition. It's one way of dealing with error, isn't it? Or what you think is error. The trouble with it is that you can use it for political purposes just to get rid of people that don't suit your way of doing things. Of course, that's not what we do. What do we do when someone is in error? When someone's getting it wrong, when someone's teaching it wrong, we try to correct them if it's possible to do that. But certainly what we ought to do is pray for them. Pray for them that they will turn from the error and return to the gospel of Jesus, turn to the truth. Notice what John says. A brother commits a sin that does not lead to death. You should pray and God will give him life. Pray believing that God will be at work in that person's life. It might take a long period of time. You will need to be patient. You will need to do it for years. Some of us are praying for our children because our children have decided not to follow Jesus anymore. And you have to be incredibly patient and steadfast and pray for them that the path they're on will not be the ultimate path that they end on, that they return to the Lord Jesus. We, know, we can know that God hears and answers our prayers. Verse 18, we can know that our future is secure. It says this, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who, has born, who, was, who was born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. So this is something in here about our, um, our, our eternal destination. When John says that we know, um, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, he's not saying that that's the end of it, that we, that we are um, never going to sin again, that nothing we do is, uh, is going to be sinful. Of course he's not saying that because we know that we all still sin. We all still get it wrong. We all still make 
mistakes. It's not that we won't ever sin. That is our daily experience. But what it means is really reassuring. It gives us hope. It's that there is genuine perseverance among those who have genuine faith. It means that we keep on going. It means that we don't give up, that we have in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we don't give up on it. We return to God, you know, and we help one another in the face of it, in the face of the sins that be, uh, beset us. We help one another through that. Sometimes that's easier than others. If someone has an obvious problem, I think of my friends who have struggled with addiction of one kind or another. Often it's easier to help them with that than it is on all those secret sins that maybe nobody else knows about, nobody else in your family knows about, nobody else in the church knows about. The things that you do in secret and private that you're struggling with, that you know is not the best um, thing that God wants for you. And John's saying, you know, that perseverance, that struggle is important. If we have genuine faith, we're going to battle against sin. Not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And John says that in the midst of all of that, God protects us. The evil one will try to accuse us and attack us and belittle us and deny that God can help us. But John says the evil one can't touch you. If you're born of God, then Jesus himself keeps you safe and the evil one cannot harm you. So even though we go on struggling with sin, the consequences of our sin as we turn away from it and turn back to God in confession are that we receive all that he has for us, fresh forgiveness, new beginning each time. That's why every Sunday at St. Thomas's we have a confession. I know sometimes you think, well, I've not really got anything to confess this week because I'm a good person. Let me just correct that. You're not. You're not as good as you think you are. Okay. Do you know how I know that? Because I'm not as good as I think I am. So if it's true for me, I'm guessing it might be true for you as well. And so it's really important that we confess our sin. But each time we do it, it's a new start. It's a reset. It's a new beginning. It's part of our battle with the world of flesh and the devil. So be reassured. We can know that our future is secure as we come again and again and again to the Lord. Fourth thing, only five, we're nearly there. We can know victory in the midst of the battle. We know that we are from God. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We look at the world around us, whether it's in the first century in Ephesus or the 21st century Edinburgh, and John says the world is in the control of the evil one. Now, some people don't want to, say, don't want to believe this anymore. Some Christians want to kind of say, no, no, we need to be looking at the good in people. And there is good in people because we're all made in the image of God. Of course, there is. They are. But John says the world is in control of the evil one. How do we know this? What evidence is this? Is there? Um, quite a lot, I think. Because you only have to kind of turn on the news. I, it's, the news has got such that I, I'm not watching as much as I once did. I was a bit of a news junkie. But no longer. You turn on the news 
And those who think the world gets better with time, those who will tell you the world's only going to get better, things can only get better, what evidence is there of that? Human hearts are still capable of the most heinous crimes. Terrorists. Let's not go into the places. You know the places that you only have to turn on the news and you see what is happening. You see what happens on the streets of cities as people riot. You see what's happening as people live in poverty, as more people live in poverty and and are struggling to make ends meet. And we hear less and less about that because our thoughts are diverted to the other evils that we see around the world. The world is full of evil. Why? Because it's in the control of the evil one. But you know something? We are from God. We are in God, even though the world is in the control of the evil one, God wins. God has won the victory at the cross of Christ, defeating sin and the devil. When did World War II really come to an end in Europe? I know it was May 1945, but many would say that the real effort was D-Day 1944, 6th of June 1944, when the, the Allies landed on the coast of Normandy. But there was a terrible amount of fighting and loss of life that had to go on to get to the very end. And we're in that period of the now and the not yet. And so around us, we see all these things happening that are distressing and are evil. And we live in that in-between. But God says the victory is ours. We are from God, but we're still very much in the battle. And so it's important that we don't give up, we don't surrender, we keep on battling and fighting and trying to do the good. This world is under the power of the evil one, but just for a bit longer. We're of God. It's just a matter of time before complete victory in Jesus will be seen. So keep on fighting, keep on battling to the end. And just because you're growing older and wiser, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep battling to the very end. Fifthly and lastly, we can know that the Son of God has come and that he gives us understanding. Verse 20 says this, we know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You know, we couldn't have thought about, we couldn't have worked out Christianity, the Christian faith by ourselves. It isn't something that we could have deduced. It isn't something that we could have decided ourselves. Someone had to tell us about it. So we had to hear it from someone else. Next week, we begin Advent. This is, today's the end of the church calendar, and next week, Advent begins. It's a new beginning of the church year. But it, Advent points us to the reality that Jesus has come to give us understanding so that we can know what is true. Because of Jesus, we can know all of those truths that we are his and that Jesus has come to live and die so that we could have eternal life. We've been putting out leaflets through the doors. Thank you so much. We've had 5,000 leaflets uh, to give out. They're nearly all gone. If you've got any, could you tell me or tell the office that you've got any left? Because we think we're going to have to do a second run. But it's really interesting, the response. Our purpose is not merely to advertise the church. We're trying to tell people about Jesus because that's all we're about. I think we say that in our 
in, our, uh, in the, these little leaflets. We, we're all about Jesus. We want to know him and we want others to know him. He's come into the world so that people might know how much they're loved, how much they're cared for, and that they might have understanding too. That's our goal. That's our purpose in life. We can know what's true. And what's true can give us the assurance we need to live for God, even when it's hard. We have all the assurance we need for this life and for the next one true. I read this yesterday, um, written by a guy called Dane Ortland. And he says this, are we trying to get Christ to love us or do we know that he already does love us? Are we trying to create our own identity to become who we want to be or do we accept the great identity that's given to us by Jesus? Are we trying to climb up the ladder of success to find God at the top or do we meet him at the bottom so that we can bear fruit his way? And then he says this, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God, or from it. For a new identity as a son or daughter of God, or from it. For your union with Christ, or from it. And you know something, as I thought about it, I kind of realized, I thought at first it was a choice, and then I realized that we're meant to do both. That's what I think. We're meant to do both those things. Just rewind those again. I'm going to say the, that last bit again. Thank you. Stephen, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can either live it for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from it, for a new identity as a son or daughter of God or from it, for a union with Christ or from it. That's our identity. We are united with Christ. And from that flows great blessings and love to us, but also to a needy, needy world. John ends this letter in the most strange way possible. The last line of it says this, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Weird. Who signs off a letter like that? It's a kind of bit frightening, isn't it? But the reason he does it is because every Christian, every church has got the potential for having idols within it. The idols sometimes can be the building or the denomination of which we are part. I heard of someone taking exception to us leafleting the area because their denomination apparently is in control of the area. I had no knowledge of that, really. I thought there were plenty of sheep around who might need to hear the gospel of Christ, but apparently that's the... So, you know, we can make our little grouping a bit of an idol. We need to be careful about that. We can put the minister on a pedestal, or maybe we take him off the pedestal and make the minister a bit of an idol. We can have idols in our our personal lives, our happiness, how we spend our time, our family. Family has become a huge idol, uh, even for those of us in the church. And an idol is anything that takes the place of God. An idol is the thing that takes the place of God, that takes the place of Jesus in our lives. Now, all these things can be important. Church is important. It'd be rubbish if I said, church isn't important, don't bother coming. I'd be struggling, wouldn't I, if I said that. Of course it's important. Family is important. Work is important. All of these are important. Enjoyment, 
pleasure and entertainment. All of these are great things. It's not saying that, but when we fill our lives with other stuff, other than Jesus, other than God, then we, we maybe are in danger of having idols. And so John is thinking about the Ephesians, and he realizes this city that's full of idols, in the church it's still possible for people to have idols in the place of Jesus. And because we end where we started, it's all about Jesus. Put Jesus front and center. He is paramount. He's the one that you desire. He's the one that you want more than anyone or anything in this world. He's your first love and your last love. He's writing to a church in trouble. John's writing to this church that's in trouble. But this is what he says. We can know what's true and what's true can give us the assurance we need to live for God even when it's hard. So let's hold on to that assurance and let's keep on pursuing Jesus. Amen.